The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 47. The word of God speaks to us. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning. It's really good to... uh, to be with you guys this morning as we continue on in our study in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 9 now. And uh, these, are some, these are some hard verses, um, some, some really difficult things that Jesus said, difficult for his disciples, difficult for us. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we go through these things that we'll be able to, uh, uh, to see what he has for us this morning. So Father, we do come before you. Lord, we're, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful that you said that your word would not go out without accomplishing that for which you sent it. And so, Lord, we're, we're opening our hearts before you now. We're asking you to give us ears and give us open hearts that we can receive what you have to say for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at a map of the area around the Sea of Galilee, which I think is helpful for us to keep before us this morning. So let's recap Jesus' recent travels using our map. If we back up to Mark chapter 5, you'll remember that we find Jesus setting a man free there from a legion of demons. So that happened in the country of the Gerasenes over on the east or the right side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see there's a, a red dot there. And that's, uh, that's the spot where that happened. Well, that man wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said, no, I want you to stay and go tell everybody what I did for you. So it says that he went to the 10 towns of the Decapolis telling them about Jesus. Well, when Jesus left Gerasa, he crossed over the sea and came to Capernaum, where he healed the woman with a 12-year discharge of blood. And then he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Chapter 6 having, has him traveling to his hometown of Nazareth where he's rejected and really isn't able to do very much there because of their unbelief. Verse 6 says that Jesus went into the villages after that, teaching them, and he sent his disciples out to go heal the sick um, and preach the gospel and cast out demons. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus wound up back in Capernaum where he gathered his disciples together again. Everyone was exhausted um, from the intensity of their ministry, so they got in a boat and crossed over the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place where they could be alone. But the people saw them go. And so the people ran around the coast and actually got to the other side before Jesus and his disciples did. So Jesus again heals their sick, he teaches them, then he followed that up by feeding them a big multitude of people with, um, with two fish 
and five loaves of bread. Um, so the crowd then decides that it would be a great idea to make Jesus the king by force. And so Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat. They go head back across the Sea of Galilee while he disperses the crowd. He goes up on the mountain to pray for a while. Then he comes down and he walks out on the water to meet his disciples out on the sea. Well, after spending a couple of days in Capernaum, during which time he healed more people and had a major confrontation with the Pharisees over their worship of tradition, um, in chapter 7, Jesus and the disciples get serious about getting out of town. So they travel north up to Tyre and then to Sidon, these Gentile regions. But even there, a Canaanite woman finds him and begs him to set her daughter free from a demon. They have the discussion about the children's crumbs uh, going to the dogs, and then Jesus sets her daughter free. Um, in verse 31, they return to the Sea of Galilee to the ten towns of the Decapolis. Does that sound familiar? See, that was where Jesus had sent that newly delivered graveyard dweller to be his evangelist. It was in the ten towns of the Decapolis, and that guy has done his job. And so now everybody in those towns is ready to hear Jesus. Well, in the Decapolis, it tells us that they were astonished beyond measure, and they said, Jesus has done all things well. Well, Jesus and his disciples then go to that yet another desolate place where Jesus again feeds a multitude with seven loaves and a few fish, after which they go back across the sea to Magdala, which is Mary Magdalene's hometown. In Magdala, the Pharisees demand to see a sign. Jesus says, no signs. They get back in the boat. They travel up to Bethsaida, where Jesus heals a blind man who first can only see tree, men as trees walking, but then he uh, can see clearly. After that, they walk up to Caesarea Philippi. Along the way, Jesus first tells them about his um, impending uh, crucifixion. And that's when Peter tries to rebuke him, but Jesus rebukes Peter for agreeing with Satan. From there, they climb up on the mountain, probably Mount Hermon there, uh, where Jesus is transfigured, and they meet with Moses and Elijah. And after coming down the mountain, they find the rest of the disciples arguing with the scribes about a little boy who has an unclean spirit whom the disciples have not been able to help. Jesus casts the demon out of the boy, and he is restored to his father. And that brings us to our passage today, where it says that they passed through Galilee and came back to Capernaum. So they had done a lot of walking and a lot of rowing in those four chapters, okay? But here's a little perspective on their travels. If you look at the southernmost point that they went to, which is down around Nazareth, and then you measure up to Sidon, which was their northernmost point, it's almost exactly the same distance as from Stillwater to Norman. Okay? So it was as if they had been walking all over central Oklahoma. So they hadn't really covered a whole lot of territory. Well, why is that important to us today? Why do we really need the map? Well, our map helps us to keep it real. Jesus was you know, was really there. These were real people in a real time, in a real place, doing real things. And Jesus was ministering in a relatively small area. 
just like the relatively small area that he's calling most of us to minister in. See, we don't have to have an international ministry. We don't even have to have a national ministry um, to have a big impact on the society around us. Jesus had a gigantic impact, and he was, you know, like within a, a 30 mile radius there. Ministering on our block and on our city will help to usher in his kingdom in a real way. So, um, Mark 9 and verse 30 tells us yet again that he didn't want anyone to know that he was in the area. So as we've worked our way through Mark, we've most often found Jesus telling people not to tell anyone else about what he'd done for them. But then occasionally, we've seen him tell somebody to tell everybody, like in the, the um, uh, instance of the man who was delivered from the legion of demons. And a couple of times, um, like when he twice miraculously fed big groups of people, he was performing very public miracles. So what's going on here? I think there's a few things. I think number one, Mark 6 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were so pressed by the crowds that they didn't even have time to eat. This was an unsustainable rhythm. And so Jesus was limiting the news about him in order to make it possible for him to complete his ministry without him and the disciples physically burning out. See, they had to eat and they had to have rest just like we do. Secondly, when the crowd saw the miracles of the loaves and the fishes, then their response was to try to make him king by force. So Jesus kept the news about him limited in order to keep a nationwide riot from happening. If that had happened, the Romans would have gotten involved and it would have been a bloodbath. Thirdly, the Sanhedrin wanted to kill him and had already made a couple of attempts but it was not time for that yet either. Several times the Gospels tell us about Jesus hiding himself or Jesus eluding the religious leaders just as they were closing in on him. And number four, Jesus had a mission to accomplish that would lead him to a hill outside Jerusalem where he would be crucified. First, though, he was training his disciples. He was touching multitudes of people along the way but it was a game of cat and mouse, staying out of the clutches of the religious leaders on one side and keeping from being crushed by adoring crowds on the other side, while at the same time teaching his disciples who were being a little bit slow about catching on. Remember in John 14, when Jesus told his disciples that they would do greater things than he did? See, how could that be? How could it be greater? What could be greater than healing people, uh, delivering them from demonic oppression, and introducing them to the Father? Well, how about this? The population of Israel at the time of Jesus was, is estimated to be about 200,000 people. If Jesus preached face-to-face -face with every single one of them, he would have reached one-tenth of one percent of all the people that Billy Graham preached to live. And Billy Graham preached to a lot more people than that, televised, okay? So what's the lesson there? That uh, Billy Graham was a greater evangelist than Jesus? No. It means that Jesus, through Billy Graham, 
reached far more people than he could ever have done as a single individual in Judea. See, Jesus knew that there would be a time when millions of his followers in his name would be preaching the gospel to their neighbors, they would be praying for the sick, and they'd be casting out demons. And on that day, he would be having far more impact through us than he ever could as have as a single man ministering in that 60-mile circle in Judea. Those are the greater works, and we get to be part of that. So here's my first encouragement to us today. Volunteer to be part of the greater works that Jesus wants to do today through us. Now, if that sounds overwhelming to you, take a deep breath, okay? Uh, he'll be leading us, he'll be empowering us, and he'll be doing the work through us. That's why he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, to lead us through all of this. And it will very likely begin on your street, with your neighbors, okay? That's where it's going to start. Well, moving on in verse 33, it reads, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this is not the first time that the disciples have gotten into an argument about who was the greatest, and it won't be the last either. Um, later on, James and John will get their, their mom, Salome, to uh, go to Jesus and say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can, you, can one of my boys sit on either side of you? See? Um, in John chapter 13, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was going to model true greatness to them by washing the disciples' feet. But this time, he takes a child in his arms and he begins to teach them. Now, I absolutely believe that Jesus loves children. But I also believe that he was making another statement here too. Babies are adorable. Uh, they smile for no apparent reason. Um, watching them discover their own bodies is hilarious. You know, they're, you know, what is that? You know, and, uh, you know, and even if you've never held a baby, you have to admit that they're just pretty wonderful little creatures. But puppies turn into dogs, kittens turn into cats, and babies turn into children. Now, Jesus loves children too, but children will teach you pretty quickly that they are related to our first forefather, Adam. Um, see, I never had to teach my children selfishness. See, I didn't do this little exercise where I go, you want this? Mine. You want it? No, it's mine. See, I didn't have to do that. But they learned that all by themselves. See, I never stretched myself out on the floor in a red-faced fit because I didn't get my way. But my kids all tried that a couple of times until I taught them that that wasn't a very good idea. See, uh, I, I never bit them. But they all tried biting each other, you know? <laughs> Um, so you have to admit that children can sometimes be pretty terrible people, okay? And God calls us what? 
his children. See, you, you're not going to find a single time in Scripture when he calls us his adults. We're always his children. Um, and Jesus tells us here in Mark 9 that one measure of greatness is for a person to receive his children with all of our fits, with all of our selfishness, and with all of our posturing and posing, trying to establish which one of us is the greatest. Okay? Looking at the gospel accounts, Peter was a true child of God. Okay? First rebuking Jesus when he starts talking about the cross, and then later on telling Jesus that he's ready to go die with him. But listen now to Peter as an old man. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So humble yourselves. Peter says that's where God's grace is, is in humbling yourself. Don't wait to be humiliated. Now, Peter knew something about being humiliated, and he wasn't recommending it, okay? The greatest among us will be the servant of all. Well, next we see in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So John was upset because someone else was ministering in Jesus' name, somebody that was not affiliated with their group of 12. It didn't bother Jesus at all. In fact, he sums it up by saying, look, if they're, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. Um, in, um, in July of 1977, I was co-pastoring a little church in Boulder City, Nevada, and several of us from that church traveled to Kansas City to be part of a week-long gathering called the 1977 Conference on the Charismatic Renewal in the Christian Churches. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, believers of every stripe were there. Charismatic Baptists, Charismatic Methodists, Lutherans, Mennonites, Nazarenes, Pentecostals, Presbyterians. I was part of the non-denominational group. But the largest group of all there were the charismatic Catholics. Well, each day for a week, there were breakout sessions all around the city for the various groups. But then at night, we would all gather together in Arrowhead Stadium to worship and to hear the word preached. Um, 55,000 of us in all. So this is a front cover of a magazine that covered that conference a couple of months later. Saturday night was the evening meeting. 1977, apartheid was still a real thing in South Africa, and we had a South African black Catholic priest and a South African white Baptist pastor leading the opening prayer together, something that was illegal for them to do in their country. Black Pentecostal choir from Atlanta led worship that night, and it was lively. <laughs> um, then the keynote speaker came to the podium, a man that I know well and, um, and respect. He talked about the body of Christ, how Jesus is going to present himself a bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish, and about how if you look at the capital C church today, 
she looks like anything but that. Then he talked about the work that God is doing, much of it behind the scenes, out of sight, to bring um, sanctification to his people, and about how that gathering that night with the 55,000 of us who were so different from one another, but were coming together around the one who had died for each of us was evidence of the grace of God. He told us about a time when he was feeling so discouraged about the church that he sneaked a, a, a peek in the back of the book. And then he said, how many of you know that if you sneak a peek in the back of the book, Jesus wins? And that place went crazy. I mean, everybody was on their feet, cheering and clapping and worshiping. And I mean, for everything that we were worth. And it went on and on. And, um, you know, and it got louder and louder. And then somewhere, someone began chanting, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then 55,000 of us are chanting, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Arrowhead Stadium had never seen anything like that. And my 25-year-old heart was changed. And I knew that I would never be able to see the body of Christ the same again. See, I couldn't. The only thing that I had in common with most of those people is that that night we were agreed that Jesus is Lord. See? And we were pledging ourselves to him all over again. And we were pledging ourselves to each other. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you believe. It does. And we need to be careful to walk in the light that God has given us. While at the same time, not criticizing others of God's kids who may be trying for all they're worth to do the same thing. The truth is, they may be doing a better job than we are of walking in the light that God has given them. See? If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find some people there in the church at Corinth who were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. Now, that's pretty serious error. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul doesn't start screaming, heresy, heresy. What he does is he very calmly begins to reason with them. And talk about how that the, the resurrection of the dead is a really important doctrine for all of us who believe in Jesus. See? Um, he sometimes calls them foolish for some of the things that they're believing. But he ends the chapter saying, my beloved brethren. See? He was being careful to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So here's my point. There are people out there who are not a part of our group who are doing mighty things in Jesus' name. And Jesus says that if they're not against us, then they're for us. And, and so encouragement number two is this. Whether you're wondering who in this room is the greatest, <laughs> or if you're feeling like that our group is our Father's favorite, choose humility. It's the place where you'll find grace. Okay? Choose humility. Not only is there no grace in pride, Peter says God will actually oppose you. Well, verse 42 begins a passage that we need to really be careful with, uh, with how we see it. Jesus talks about millstones hung around people's necks and about gouging out eyes and chopping off hands and feet. 
um, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, part of rightly handling the word of truth is knowing what kind of passage that we're reading. See, if we go back to our map of Judea there um, that shows Jesus' travels, those were historical facts. Jesus actually went those places and did those things. But could there be other passages which are poetic and may not be strictly literal? Um, think about Psalm 50, verse 10, where God says that all the cattle on a thousand hills are his. Well, the question is, what about the cattle that are on the thousand and first hill? Do they belong to somebody else? See? I mean, he, he says it's the cattle on a thousand hills. Or was David poetically saying all the cows are his? So, yeah, that's what he was doing. He was, it wasn't literally the first thousand hills are God's. The rest of them must be somebody else's cows. It wasn't literal. It was poetic, okay? So, um, we need to be careful with how we handle these things. So, let's read these verses from Mark 9 again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Um, it's interesting that in verse 42, Jesus says that it'd be better for a great millstone to be hung around the neck of a person causing one of the little ones to stumble in sin. I see that little one could be a child or it could be a younger brother or sister in Christ. So millstones come in pairs. There's the, the lesser millstone, and then there's the greater millstone. And as those things roll, they put the, feed the grain in between them, and it crushes the grain. That's what the millstones are for. Well, typically, the, the lesser stone would weigh about 250 pounds. The greater stone could weigh up to 3,500 pounds. Um, I think if you put a 250-pound millstone around my neck, I'm going to drown. That's going to do it. But Jesus calls for the greater stone here. <laughs> says, no, let's bring in the 3,500 pound. I think what he's doing is he's emphasizing and underscoring the fact that for me to cause anyone to stumble is a really, really bad thing. Okay? Then he talks about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin or gouging out your eye if it's the offending member. So is Jesus being literal here or is what he's doing speaking in uh, poetic hyperbole, see, in overstatement. So think it over. Uh, we, we have a man, and, um, and he has a secretary, and he's having lustful thoughts and, uh, towards his secretary. So he gouges out his right eye. Problem is, he's got another eye. So he gouges that eye out too. But he can still hear her voice, and that causes him to lust. So he removes his ears. But he can still smell her perfume, so he cuts off his nose. See, it's like it goes ridiculous because the problem wasn't his eyes, his ears, 
or his nose in the first place. It was his heart. And that takes a miracle of God to change that heart, okay? Um, so um, rather than literally dealing with eyes, hands, and feet, this is what I think Jesus is saying in these verses. Be utterly ruthless in putting to death your sin. So the temptation for us is to make excuses for our sin, to coddle our sin, to make room in our lives for our sin. But Jesus is calling us here to an utter abandonment of our sin. Now, I'm not saying that, we'll, you know, that it will be sinless perfection. See, that will be reserved for the day when we stand face to face with Jesus and we are finished in his likeness. But Jesus is calling us to being ruthless in dealing with temptation and sin. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. See, that's a pretty high bar, shedding blood in resisting sin. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did, and I'm not talking about on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was struggling against sin, against the temptation to just skip the cross altogether. See, he sweat great drops of blood as he agonized in prayer over that. So, what does that mean for us? How do we get radical like Jesus and ruthless in putting to death our sin? Okay, so this is the part where I quit preaching and I start meddling. <laughs> so batten down the hatches here. Uh, um, you know, um, I'm going to give you a couple of things, and you'll have to judge whether these are applicable to you or not. The first one is this. For many of us, we're carrying around with us something that daily lures us into sin. See, uh, this can be a technological blessing that God can use for his purposes, or it can be an out-of-control tool of the enemy. Only you know where you are with this thing. An addiction to the 24-hour news cycle will keep you in a constant state of anxiety and turmoil, which is sin. An addiction to Instagram or Facebook can easily drain away the time that God has allotted for your family, and for him, see? Um, as you look at this thing, Instagram or Facebook, and see those, those perfect lives on this little screen, see? Uh, it can leave you dissatisfied with your own less than perfect life. And that, again, is sin. And a porn addiction will absolutely decimate your life and the life of your family. So if you have an unhealthy, out-of-control relationship with this thing, get rid of it and get a flip phone that will limit your access. See, you won't die. I know you think you'll die, but you won't die. Um, you know, that, that's radical, but radical ruthlessness is what Jesus is calling us to here. It won't fix the problem in your heart, but what it will do is it will give you some breathing room so that you can begin to heal. Uh, James, in the first, uh, fifth chapter of his book, then gives us the next important step. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you'll be healed. See, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are more than willing 
to walk with us as God heals us. Community is where it happened in the first century, and community is where it will happen for us too. Well, the second thing that we can do in our quest to radically put to death sin is this. Be very careful about what you let into your life. city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time had city walls and it had city gates. And the walls and the gates were there to make it impossible for the enemies to get in. Well, you know what? We have gates too. We have eye gates and we have ear gates and we need to jealously guard those things to keep the enemy from getting in. Okay? Um, Paul, writing to the Philippian church, said this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So LG Electronics, which is a TV manufacturer, conducted a study that concluded that the average adult will watch 3,639 movies at home and 31,507 episodes of TV during their lifetime. So unless you're watching a documentary, let me tell you how it goes, okay? Um, the first few minutes will be introduced to the main character and maybe some supporting characters. Uh, we'll get to see them relating together and a rhythm of life will be established together. Then, from out of nowhere, a conflict arises. Can you believe it? <laughs> and, uh, and then... Um, that conflict, see, it may be a relational conflict, in which case most of the guys will say, chick flick, or it might, the, the bullets might start flying. And if they do, then most of the women will say, boring. But either way, see, either way, what's going to happen is that the, the main character, maybe with some help, from some of those supporting characters, uh, they are going to, through their own charm, cleverness, strength, wealth, or some other amazing attribute, they'll be able to overcome the conflict, and everyone except the perpetrators of the conflict will live happily ever after. That's the story. I mean, we've all heard it tens of thousands of times. See, movie makers tried to break this, this mold in the late 1960s. In the late 1960s, they started making movies where at the very end, all the main characters, all the heroes and heroines were either dead or dying. But those movies were downers and, and they lost money on them. So they quit making those movies. Uh, 1977, George Lucas went back to the old pattern, created Star Wars and made a bazillion dollars. You know, he just went back to what they'd always done before. But here's the rub. In those 3,600 movies and those 31,000 episodes, when the conflict arose, the main characters literally never stopped and said, this circumstance is too big for us. We need God's wisdom and his intervention here. Let's pray now. See? They muscle through or they sneak through or they talk their way through it, but they never stop and call on God. 
And we've been told that story tens of thousands of times since watching Bert and Ernie. <laughs> I mean, same story over and over again, you know. Is there, is there any wonder that it's difficult when we begin to encounter difficulties in life that we don't just automatically call out on the Lord? We've heard the other story so many times, see? Uh, John Wayne, he never called out you know, for God's mercy. Liam Neeson doesn't do it in his movies. I uh, haven't seen all of Ryan Reynolds' movies, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't do it either. See, we were called to evangelize the world, but the world has evangelized us. See, we've heard that story too many times. So, am I saying that we need to stop watching movies and watching TV? Uh, should we only watch epi early episodes of Veggie Tales? And The Chosen, season one and two. <laughs> um, no, that's not really what I'm saying. I am saying that our steady diet needs to be from Philippians 4. Those things that are true, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So, is that radical? Yeah, it is. Kind of like Jesus saying that we need to... Uh, deal with sin by gouging out our eyes and uh, chopping off our hands and feet. Well, Paul finishes these verses in Philippians 4 by saying, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good trade-off, see? Trading the turmoil of a life trying to manage our sin for the God of peace being with us. Well, our last verse is Mark 9 and verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, not only Jesus, but all of, all of the hearers of this had some clear understanding about salt. See, salt preserves things. In that first century world, without refrigeration, it preserved meat, fish, anything else that was, that was going to spoil. They needed salt. And salt flavors anything that it touches. See, it makes food a lot more interesting. It just does. Um, so let's look here at Jesus' discussion of salt. First, he tells us that salt is good, but then he talks about salt losing its saltiness. Well, from a chemistry standpoint, that's kind of a problematic statement. Table salt, sodium chloride, is a, a really stable compound. In Jesus' time, it would have been difficult for anybody to do anything chemically to salt to make it lose its saltiness. But there was one way that anybody could make salt lose its saltiness, and that was by diluting it. If you take a couple of grains of table salt, put them in a glass of water, and drink the water, the salt has lost its saltiness. You won't be able to taste it. It will no longer preserve anything. It just tastes like nothing. Matthew 5.13, which is a parallel verse to this one. Jesus says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's worthless. And it's to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. He was warning his disciples and he's warning us. We live in the most distracted and the most distracting generation the world has ever known. And we are busy, most of us way too busy for our own good and for the good of our families. So here's my fourth and final encouragement to us today. Prioritize your life so that his priorities 
become your priorities. Don't be deluded into worthlessness. In that passage in Matthew 5, Jesus calls us a salt of the earth. His plans for the earth hinge on us flavoring and preserving society. It's time for us to get radically ruthless as his salt about not being diluted into worthlessness. Well, these verses today, uh, you know, were weighty and, and sobering as he spoke them to his disciples. They're also weighty and sobering as we read them too. That map of Judea with all the lines all around, Jesus travels. See, that wasn't Jesus and his boys on a vacation. They were in a battle for the souls of people and Jesus was laying the foundation for his church in those men. Of all the people in that little band of brothers that day, only Jesus understood the battle that they were in and the toll that it was going to take on his disciples when he went to the cross. Just before he was arrested, he said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. When you turn back to me, strengthen your brothers. See, he loved those guys just like he loves us. See, he loved them and he loves us enough to say really hard things to us. And did you know that Jesus is praying for us right now? Writer of Hebrews says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. How well do you think Jesus' prayers get answered? Stand with me and let's respond to him.